Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. 1 Peter chapter 5 is one of the great chapters in the Word of God. It was authored, humanly speaking, by the Apostle Peter, as the name indicates. And Peter, you may know, was one of the original apostles of Jesus. Peter was very much like many of us. He was impulsive, impetuous. He had a number of personality challenges, but he had great raw material. In fact, he's one of the people in the Bible who had his name changed by the Lord. You remember he gave Abram the new name Abraham. Abraham means father of a multitude. And the idea is that the new name indicates what God is able to do with that person. He gave uh, Jacob the new name Israel. Jacob means trickster and deceiver. Not a real good kind of reputation to have or character to exhibit, but God changed his name to Israel, which means prince with God, because God was going to make him a very influential person. And of course, Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 had 70 sons. Those 70 begat a multitude which became the nation of Israel. God made him a prince. So the name indicates what God is able to do with the person. Well, God changed Simon's name, which means shifting sand, unstable, to Peter, which means a rock, something solid, something stable, because the Lord intended to remake Peter, to grow Peter, to mature Peter. That's what I want to see this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's think for a few moments about Peter as an example of growing in grace. That expression, growing in grace, is one of Peter's favorite expressions. You'll see he refers to spiritual growth in the last verse of Second Peter, Second Peter 3.18, but grow in grace. Here's how he signs off his letter. He tells these people he wants them to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in 1 Peter 2.2, he says, as newborn babes, if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Growth in grace is Peter's way of describing sanctification. Paul's way of talking about sanctification is uh, being a new man, being mature. John's way is perfection in love. Now you'll find being perfect in love is his ideal for what it means to be holy. But Peter's expression when he thinks of the doctrine of practical sanctification is growth in grace. And my friends, every one of us should want to grow. Living things grow, don't they? Now a dead stick doesn't grow, but a little plant grows. And you want that which has life to develop, don't you? Something's wrong if it doesn't grow. You want to see your little babies grow. Sometimes mothers say, I wish I could just keep them at this stage forever. But let's be honest, you really would be concerned if they stayed at that stage forever. You want to see progress. You want to see development. You want to see maturation. 
growth. And Peter says that he wants the Christians to whom he writes his two epistles in the New Testament, first and second Peter, he wants them to grow in grace, that is in Christian character. Wants them to be more Christ-like. And I think it's helpful for each one of us from time to time to ask ourselves the question, am I growing? Now, by the way, your answer to that question about yourself is going to be different than my answer to that question about you. You ever seen a little child stand in front of a mirror and say, I'm not growing, I'm not growing, I'm not growing. I wish I could grow. You may remember that there was a certain stage in your life where you were very frustrated that you were not getting any taller. All of your peers were growing and you were at this level of stunted growth, it seemed like. But then I would go to a family reunion and an uncle or aunt that hadn't seen me in a year would say, my, you are growing like a weed. And I thought, I am? I didn't see it. I've been looking in the mirror every day, and it doesn't look like I'm making any progress. And may I say, as I look at your lives as your pastor, I can see spiritual growth. But you may wonder, am I really growing? But I'll tell you that's a goal that each one of us should set or should have for ourselves. I want to be more mature. I'm tired of being so wishy-washy in my life. Up and down like a roller coaster. And I want to be more consistent, more mature, more even-keeled, more stable, more steady in all weathers. I want to grow. And Peter wants the people to whom he writes to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ their Lord. Now, we can't grow grace. <laughs> we can't, from a state of death and trespassing and sins, become children of God. But once he's given you life, as newborn babes, you've been given new life like a little baby. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The word of God is crucial to spiritual growth. And I think that Peter himself is an example or an object lesson of what spiritual growth is all about. The Lord intended to make the shifting sand of Simon into the stable rock of a Peter. And no doubt we see evidence in 1 Peter that he has made tremendous progress, even though a short time has passed. I want us to look at this chapter, 1 Peter chapter 5, to make some connections from the lessons that Peter is giving to his readers to his own personal experience. We can see that through the things that he experienced, he's now turning around and sharing that lesson with others. He himself, in other words, is an example of growth. He wants them to learn the same lessons that he's learned. And the first lesson that we can learn is a lesson in loving. Notice verses 1 and 2. The elders which are among you, he says, I exhort, who am also an elder. Now, I think that's interesting. For Peter was more than just a preacher or an elder in the church. He was an apostle. And the apostles were men who had special privileges and special authority. They were men who had seen Christ with their eyes. They were men who had received direct revelation. What they knew didn't come second-handed like what I know has come. And they were men who had special abilities and sign gifts to speak in tongues, to heal the sick, and so forth. They were given special powers, the apostles. 
But I think it's interesting that Peter does not flex his apostolic muscles in this verse. He calls himself just a common preacher. The elders which are among you, he says to the church, I exhort, I encourage, who am also an elder. He calls himself just a common preacher. He doesn't think of himself as a cut above them. He sees himself on the same level and treats them as peers. And he says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I've seen Christ's crucifixion and suffering and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Now, I don't want you to lose this idea of future glory that he talks about in this chapter because it, we'll come back to it in a moment. But I want you to listen now to verse 2. Feed the flock of God. Now, does that language, when Peter's telling these elders to feed the sheep, remind you of any particular episode in Peter's personal history? It reminds me of John chapter 21 and the seaside breakfast. After the resurrection of Jesus, Peter had told the other disciples, I go a fishing. And at the beginning of John 21, it says they began to fish at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, that's the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Tiberias is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. When you get home, you may look in the back of your Bible and you'll notice that the Sea of Galilee is in the north, the Sea of Tiberias. And Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified and buried, is in the south, about 70 miles away. When Peter and the other disciples had seen the risen Christ, Peter realized or he felt that he was, had disqualified himself from ministry. Do you remember what he had done? Peter had denied three times Jesus the night of his crucifixion. Do you remember? I know not the man, woman, I know not what thou sayest. He even cursed and swore. He took an oath and said, I do not know Jesus. Can you imagine your best friend turning his back on you? That's what Peter did to Jesus. After he had told him that I'll go with you to death, though everyone else forsakes you, you can count on me. I will never forsake you. We're in this together, Jesus. I'm your best friend. And now Peter three times denies Jesus. And that teaches me that we don't often know our own weaknesses, right? That we sometimes exaggerate our ability and think that we will do things. But when actually put to the test, we realize that we fumbled the ball. Well, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And so he said, I think I'll just go back to my former occupation. It's been three and a half years since he's been a professional fisherman. And he has influence. Now that tells me that Peter was a, was a leader. He was an alpha personality. And uh, when he made a decision, and he often made decisions impulsively, but when he made a decision, others said, okay, we'll go with you. And that's what happened. John 21, Peter said, I go a fishing. And the other said, we also go with thee. And they went to the Sea of Tiberias. So they traveled 70 miles from Jerusalem. That's John chapter 20, Jerusalem. By John 21, they're in the Sea of Galilee. And they're fishing again. And suddenly they look on the shore and there's a stranger there who calls out to them, children, have you any meat? And they've been fishing and they've not caught anything. And I can imagine there was a note of frustration in their voice when they said, no. And that's what John 21 says. They simply said no. They didn't say, oh, um, no, sir. We, they just said no. In other words, leave us alone. We're already frustrated and embarrassed. But then he says, cast the net on the right side. 
you remember the story, and when they did, they began to catch so many fish that the net began to break. And then John turned to Peter, you can read all of this in John 21, and said, it is the Lord. And Peter girt his fisherman's coat about him, for he was naked, and cast himself into the water and swam to shore while the others drew the net and came to shore in the boat. And when he got up on the shore, they found that he had already prepared breakfast for them, fish on the coals of the fire. And he fed them breakfast. Now they were out there trying to catch fish, probably hungry, tired, and fatigued. Jesus had already caught breakfast for them, and he fed them. He served them, and then he asked Peter three times, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Now Peter had boasted, Lord, I love you more than everybody. I'm, I'm with you. Though all men forsake thee, I will never forsake thee. Jesus says, do you really love me more? And Peter says, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Twice more. Simon, lovest thou me? And he says, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said, feed my sheep. The third time, lovest thou me? And Peter being grieved that he asked him the third time. In other words, don't you get the point? But you see, Peter didn't realize that Jesus asked him three times because Peter had denied him three times. Peter three times had said, I don't know him. I don't have anything to do with him. Now he gets an opportunity to make reparations, if you please, to confess his love for the Savior three times. And by the way, that's the most important question I could ask any one of you this morning. Do you love Jesus Christ? Not can you dissect the three different views of the millennium, pre, post, and all millennialism. Now that's interesting and no doubt has a place. But the most important question I could ask any one of us this morning is, do you love Jesus Christ? The fact is, the foundation of true Christian discipleship is love for the Savior. Are you grateful for what he's done for you on the cross? Is he more precious to you than anything that this world has to offer. Unto you that believe, says Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, he is precious. But unto the unbelievers, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, Peter received a lesson in loving at this seaside breakfast when Jesus said, feed the flock of God, feed my sheep. Whose sheep are they? And isn't it interesting that God compares his people to sheep? We're not lions or bears or tigers, you know, great hunters and fierce predators and able to take care of ourselves. We're little helpless sheep, aren't we? God's people are very vulnerable and they're very weak. And to be real honest with you, no offense intended, they're not very smart. You know, a sheep will just uh, wander away from the fold and then look up and realize that no other lambs are around, that he's gotten himself into a fix. And we get like that, don't we? Sheep are helpless. They don't have sharp teeth. They don't, they're not fleet of foot. They don't have the ability to camouflage. They're not nimble and agile and able to climb and hide. They are just very dependent on a shepherd. My friends, we are sheep. And we need a shepherd to take care of us. And Jesus takes care of his people by telling his preachers, his elders, like Peter, feed the flock of God. And now Peter passes that lesson on to others. And here's the lesson. It's a lesson in loving. Peter, if you love me, 
then show that you love me by serving my people. May I say today, my beloved, that we show our love for the Lord by loving his less than perfect people around us. You know any less than perfect people around you? You say, oh boy, they have so many flaws. I just really get frustrated with all of the inconsistencies and the idiosyncrasies and the flaws of my brothers and sisters in the church. I mean, so-and-so sings off-key. He's always 15 minutes late. She sings way too loud, or she sings way too soft, or the preacher preaches just way too long, or it's too hot or too cold. Or, you know, it's easy to start nitpicking people that we love. Families can do that. Living with somebody in a family, you can get to the point where you are just picking them apart like a vulture picks meat off of a bone. And you're nitpicking instead of remembering the qualities that drew you to that person. The more familiar we are, the more we have to struggle against this feeling of contempt. But my friends, may I say that the best way to show that you love the Lord, and I hope that you, I'm talking to a group of people here this morning who really love him. Do you love Jesus? You say, oh yes. And the way I'm going to prove it is I'm going to sing louder than everybody else. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Well, I hope you'll sing it out. There's nothing wrong with singing loud. But that's not the proof of your love for the Lord. Do you know how you prove your love for the Lord? By feeding the sheep. But that's true for preachers. This pulpit is, uh, is a place where sheep come to get fed, hopefully. It should be. I want to tell them about the Lord. I want to tell God's people about their Savior. I want to put Him on display, try to teach the Bible, try to give you the sustenance that you need, spiritually speaking, for your inner man. Many of God's children are starving in their inner man. Their bellies are full, but their souls are lean. And how we need to be fed every week. You see, I, I like to eat every day. Tell the kids sometime, they'll say, I'm hungry. I say, what do you mean you're hungry? You just ate yesterday. Well, it's a new day. I'm hungry again. God's people, my friends, need to eat. They need to feed the inner man. Feed your soul. The bread of life. Many people think about making provision for the flesh, for their bodies, but they don't think about making provision for their souls. And I'm thankful we have preachers, and I'm thankful that the Lord's people are willing to share their experience. But we show our love for the Lord by loving and serving his people. What did Jesus say in Matthew 25? Inasmuch as you've done it unto one of these, the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. He said, I was in prison, you visited me. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. Naked, you clothed me. And the righteous say, when have we done these things for thee, Lord? I think it's interesting that they don't recognize that they've really even done anything for him but he said inasmuch as you've done it unto one of these the least of my children or brethren you've done it to me you say well i love the lord i want to serve him well then get involved in ministering to others for here's a lesson in loving feed the flock of god which is among you taking the oversight thereof he says preacher take the lead don't wait for somebody to delegate that position to you. The presbytery gave you that right when they laid hands on you. So now take the initiative, take the oversight thereof. That is, be responsible for looking over and for trying to shepherd like a shepherd would a flock of sheep. You feed them, you protect them, you try to direct them to pastures that would help them, not by constraint, 
It's not humility that makes a man dig both heels into the carpet, being dragged into the pulpit, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre. There's no place for this to be just a job and a paycheck to a preacher. Not for filthy lucre. It's not a means to the end. The, the ministry is not a means to an end. Somebody says, when do you plan to retire, preacher? A primitive Baptist don't retire their preachers. They retread them and put them back on the car. And I don't plan to retire. I, I plan to wear out, not to rust out. I mean, God being my helper, uh, I'll preach until they won't let me preach anymore. <laughs> it's not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither is being lords over God's heritage. Now notice, secondly, a lesson in serving. Now we're talking about how Peter himself is an example of growth. He wants us to learn to show our love to the Lord by loving his less than perfect people. And he wants us to learn how to serve just as he learned how to serve in the upper room. John 13, he says, Neither is being lords over God's heritage, in verse 3, but being in samples to the flock. Now, do you know what I think of when I read that verse? I remember Peter and the other disciples discussing the question in John 13, who was the greatest in the kingdom of God? On two different occasions during the ministry of Jesus, the disciples had little petty debates among themselves. Who do you think will be in charge when Jesus is gone? Who's second in command? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who is indispensable to the kingdom of God, to the work of, that Jesus has taught us? When Jesus is no longer, I know he's the leader, but next to him, which one of us is the most important? May I say, it's, we understand why the disciples would discuss that, because that's human nature, isn't it? But I dare say it's a, not a good attitude. Who is the greatest? And the first time the disciples were debating as to which one of them was second in command of Jesus, he took a little child, do you remember, and put him in the midst of them and said, um, and said whosoever shall humble himself is this little child the same as greatest in the kingdom. You know, that's what I love about these little children. They don't put on airs. They're not thinking about self-promotion or self-advancement. They're not trying to build, build a legacy to their own memory. They're just sincere, simple in their faith, and sincere in their motives. They don't put on a lot of show, do they? They're humble. And Jesus said, if you want to be great, in my, then be a servant. Here's a lesson in serving. The second time was right near the end of Jesus' ministry, and they have gone into the upper room to have the Passover meal. And during that meal, Jesus institutes the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. He adds the communion onto the Passover meal for the church. The Passover meal was for the Jewish law. But now to his disciples, because Christianity goes a step further than Judaism, here's an ordinance for the church. The memorial supper of the unleavened bread and the wine in remembrance of my broken body. Not in remembrance of a four-legged lamb that was slain and the blood applied to the doorposts for the Passover the Jewish history, in Jewish history. But now this is my blood and my flesh, which is given for my people. And it's during the Last Supper. Now, can you think of a holier moment than the communion service with the disciples? Jesus is about to die. And he said, this is my blood. This is my flesh. Drink it. Uh, and eat it in remembrance of me is can you think of a holier moment more sacred moment than that 
But yet the disciples are saying, have you made a decision? Do you think I'm more important than John? What about me? Am I more important than Thomas? Which one of us is the greatest? And Jesus teaches them another lesson here. What does he do? He clothes himself with humility. He takes off his garment and he girts himself with a towel and he bows down and begins to wash the disciples' feet. John 13. And he began to wash Peter's feet. Peter's the one, right? And Peter said, oh, no, Lord, that's... <laughs> Stop. Jesus, this is beneath you. This is subservient. This is humiliating. No, thou shalt never wash my feet. Somebody once described Peter as the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. Because every time he started to talk, he stuck his foot in his mouth. Can you identify? I sure can. <laughs> I've been there. I mean, he's so impulsive, impetuous. Now, I admire his go-get-em attitude. He's a leader. I admire that, you know. He's like a maverick, but you want to, you know, you want to harness his will. Uh, you want to harness him, make him productive. Peter says, we're not to be lords over God's heritage. That is, we're helpers. We're not rulers, but we're to be examples in samples to the flock. In other words, we're to live this gospel that we preach so that they can not only listen to it verbally, but they can see it visibly in our attitude. Paul told Timothy, be thou an example of the believers in faith, in charity, in doctrine, in word. You live the gospel so that they can see it and hear it. And then he says in verse 5, likewise ye younger, submit yourselves to the elders. And we're living in a, an, a day in which there is still generational warfare in Christian circles. The youth think the older folks, the elderly, are uh, out of touch. And now we need to do it our way. And the elderly think that the youth are dangerous. Notice this verse, though. Likewise, ye younger in the church, submit yourselves, submit to the elder. So he says, you respect them defer to them yea all of you that's the older people also be subject one to another this attitude of humility humble submission to one another should prevail in all demographics and age groups in the church he says and be clothed with humility what did jesus do in the last supper he took off his garment and he clothed himself with humility and he got down and the lord of glory began to wash the calloused feet of an old fisherman for God resisteth the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Peter learned at the feet washing service a lesson in serving. God wants us to be servants, right? Third, Peter learned a lesson in trusting. Notice verse 7. Casting all your care on him, for he careth for you. Peter, of course, knew how to cast. He was a net fisherman. If you've ever cast net fish, that's a special skill. I've never been able to master it. I get all tangled up in the net and fall into the water with it. So, but it's a special skill, casting. Peter tells these Christians, I've learned to trust, to cast my cares on the Lord. And I want you to learn to cast all your care upon him as well. I want to ask you this morning, does anybody here have any worries, anxieties, burdens, cares on your heart and mind this morning? 
See, Brother Mike, there's a nagging fear, a nagging concern in the back of my mind about my loved ones or about somebody that's ill or about somebody that's not doing right. Brother Mike, I'm concerned about the church or I'm concerned about the health of my friend or I do, I have burdens, I have worries, anxieties. What should I do with that? Well, just let it give you stomach ulcers. Is that what Peter says? Just let it rule your life to where you never smile anymore and all you do is think about the problems and the pressures and fear dominate. No, he says learn how to cast. God's people need to learn how to cast. They need to learn how to trust. Roll it over onto somebody who can handle it. I'll have to tell you, I can't handle all of your burden. I'm glad to help you bear your burdens. I love you that much, and I hope you won't shut me out. If you have a problem, a burden, a need, please ask me to pray. Ask me for what the Word of God has to say. I'll do my best to try to help you. My friends, each one of us have problems that no man can help us with or solve, ultimately speaking. And the best thing you can do is learn how to turn it over to the Lord. Take your burdens to the Lord and leave them there. You say, well, did Peter ever learn that lesson? We know he learned a lesson in loving, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. He learned a lesson in serving, clothing yourself with humility, and bowing down, assuming a lower posture, and doing for others the most menial of tasks, because that's the way that you serve. Did he ever learn a lesson in trusting? Yes, at least on two occasions. Luke chapter 5, verse 4, the disciples are again fishing, and uh, they've not caught anything, and Jesus gives them the counsel again, cast the net on the right side. And sure enough, they do what he said. I love what Peter says. Lord, we've fished all night. We've toiled all night and caught nothing. Now, was Jesus a professional fisherman? No, he's a preacher. At best, as far as secular trades are concerned, he was a carpenter. He wasn't a fisherman. You take a person who's fished for a living for a, and has many years of experience, they know the sea, they know when to pack up and go home, they know when there's an opportunity to keep trying because they'll catch. Peter says, Lord, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. As far as I'm concerned, we might as well pack up and go back to the house and uh, take a nap. But Jesus, who's the preacher, presumes to give advice to the professional fisherman. Throw the net on the other side. Cast the net. And Peter says, Lord, we've, there, I don't think it will help, but nevertheless, at thy word, we will. And that's the attitude of faith. Faith says, Lord, I can't see how this is going to work, but nevertheless, at your word, I'll do what you said. Nevertheless, at thy word, faith acts on the Word of God and trusts Him for the outcome. Regardless of the feelings within us, the circumstances around us, or the consequences ahead of us. Nevertheless, at thy word we will. And when they did, they caught so many again that the net broke. And Peter said, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Strange response. Lord, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Anytime you get a glimpse of just how powerful and wise and glorious the Lord is, it makes you see yourself as weak and unworthy in comparison. I understand that response. Peter learned 
that you can trust the Lord to do what he said. Another occasion is in Matthew 14. Do you remember when Peter saw somebody walking to them on the water during a storm at sea and the disciples were all there in the boat and here's this stranger walking on the water and they're afraid. They think they've seen a ghost and suddenly Jesus speaks and says, be not afraid, it is I. And Peter responds. See, he's always the leader. He always speaks first. No wonder he got himself into so many trouble, so much trouble. But he speaks first and he says, Lord, if it be thou, bid me to come to thee on the water. What? You're wanting to do what Jesus is doing? Walk on top of the water? And Peter says, Lord, I believe that if you can do it, through you I can do it too. And Jesus said, come. And Peter steps down out of the boat and he begins to walk on the water. Until what? Until he loses sight of Jesus and he sees the winds and waves boisterous around him and then he began to sink. And Jesus picked him up. He said, Lord, save her, I perish. And Jesus picked him up and said, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? In other words, Peter, you should have kept your eyes on me. You see, that's our problem. We lose sight of the Lord and we start looking at the circumstances around us and we start to sink. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Peter learned what it means to trust. He was a man of little faith. He learned to cast his care upon the Lord, for he cares for you. How do you know he cares for you? He cares to provide for you. When you're out there fishing all night and you've caught nothing, he cares to save and deliver you when you're sinking. Jesus cares for you. And therefore, you should cast your care on him, for he cares for you. Peter learned a lesson in trusting. And then verses 8 and 9 of 1 Peter 5. You see how each of these draw from his past experience? Feed the sheep. That's John 21. Clothe yourself in humility. That's John 13. Cast your cares on the Lord, for he cares for you. Trust him. That's a Luke chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 14. Now, verses 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Peter learned a lesson in watching. Be sober, be vigilant. That word vigilant means be alert, be on guard, be on watch. Be sober, that is, be serious. Now, I love a good joke as much as anybody. And I can laugh. In fact, I think laughter is good for the soul. And I try to maintain a lighthearted sense of humor as much as possible in life. But you know, the fact is, life is not a game. It's not a party. And I think we need to be serious-minded about it. You can laugh and still take life seriously. Serving the Lord is not a game of tiddlywinks. It's not child's play. It's not hopscotch. We're playing for keeps. God plays for keeps, right? And we need to take the service of God seriously. So be sober and be vigilant. He says, don't lose focus. Christian, stay on watch. And why should we be alert? Why should we not just drift off into la-la land and allow the world to just carry us along? But we should be thoughtful and conscientious and focused. Why should we be watchful? Because you have an adversary. Now, that may be news to some of you this morning, but you have an enemy. You say, oh, I do. He does not like me. I don't know why this bully at school or at work doesn't. No, that's not your adversary. 
He may be being used as a pawn of your adversary, but that's not your ultimate enemy. You have an adversary, the devil. Notice how he refers to him. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Now, I'm glad to tell you today, the devil can never take away what Christ has purchased for you on the cross. He can't rob you of your eternal salvation, but he can make your testimony of no effect. He can ruin your mind, your sanity. He can ruin your peace. He can rob you of your witness. He can steal your joy. He's a thief says John 10, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so many people's lives have been made casualties by the great enemy of our souls. You have a spiritual enemy. You say, Brother Mike, just a minute. I'm a peace-loving man, and I, I like to get along with everybody, and I like for everybody to get along with me. I don't want any enemies. Well, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ merely by virtue of your relationship or your union with him, the devil has set you up as a target for his assaults, his attacks. You have an enemy, and he's seeking to devour you. And how many people once sit on these pews who've been devoured by the devil? They've been so distracted, and they've gotten on the wrong road, and they don't even realize it, but they've made decisions, and they've given in to the flesh, and the devil's tempted them and ruined their testimony. And it could happen to you and to me. If any man thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. I've known preachers who once preached to my edification and I thought were very useful in the cause of Christ, but they have gotten off track. They've started believing something that was not orthodox, was not accurate, and started teaching heresies and perhaps got a bad attitude. Somebody hurt their feelings and they, they allowed it to get the best of them and they, uh, you know, they just became an embittered person. And it can happen to any of us. Spirit of non-forgiveness, the spirit of bitterness, pride, worldliness, covetousness, all of these things can become stumbling blocks. And Peter says, learn the lesson, people, that you've got an enemy who's after you. And how do you know that so well, Peter? Because it happened in Peter's own life. For in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus tells his disciples, I will go to the cross and suffer and die and the third day rise again. And Peter says, Jesus, let me speak to you privately. He took him aside and he said, far be it from thee, Jesus. Don't talk like that. Far be it from thee. Do you know what Jesus said to Peter in response? In other words, he said, Jesus, don't be so negative. You're saying that you're going to suffer and die? No, Lord, stop. Let's be positive. Let's not talk about the cross. Let's talk about victory and conquering the Romans. Can you imagine Peter's audacity that he dressed Jesus, the Lord of glory, down? What audacity? What pride? Jesus says to Peter, well, Peter, I appreciate your confidence in me, but let me, I think I know a little more. Is that what he says? No, he said, get behind me what? Satan. He called Peter the devil. Now, was Peter... An unregenerate man, no. Was Peter following the devil? No. But he saw the same spirit in Peter's logic, Peter's thinking, that he had experienced at the hands of the devil when he was tempted in the wilderness. That same diabolical spirit that's trying to keep Jesus from accomplishing his mission, going to the cross. The devil tried to sidetrack him, tried to derail that mission in Matthew chapter 4. Now Peter is saying, Lord, no, you're not going to go to the cross. Don't even talk like that. 
Peter was oblivious to the fact that he was being actuated or influenced by the enemy. And sometimes that enemy can influence some of us and we don't even know it, right? There's another occasion, Luke chapter 22, verse 31, and Peter has told Jesus, I'll go with you all the way. And Jesus tells him what? Before the cock crows twice. Now the rooster, have you, if you've ever lived in the country, you know that when the rooster starts crowing, which is usually about 4 a.m., I used to hear them when I was a boy growing up, and then I went a period of time and didn't hear the roosters crowing until I went to uh, Africa a few years ago, and uh, I remember every morning. I mean, they'd start competing with each other, you know. The roosters would start competing as to which one could get the sun to come up first. I thought, okay, I remember what that feels like, and I kind of miss it, to be honest with you. I miss the simplicity of country living. But anyway, uh, Jesus tells Peter before the cock crows twice. They started about four, they crow again about five. Before the cock crows twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter's, no, that's not going to happen. Jesus said it will happen. And then he tells him, Simon, Simon. Notice how he uses his old name. Shifting sand. Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have thee, that he might sift you as wheat. Satan is after you, Peter, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Jesus tells Peter that the devil is after you. No believer, my beloved, is exempt from the devil's attacks. You're not, I'm not, and Peter learned that lesson. Satan was after him. You say, well, I'm not important preacher. He won't bother me. Oh, my friends, he'll make casualties of every one of us if he can. Doesn't matter how young or old, how rich or poor, doesn't matter how influential or background, if the, the devil will rob you of every blessing worth having this side of eternal bliss if he can. Now, praise God he can't take away heaven. But he can take away everything worth having in this world. My friends, don't let him. Be sober. Be vigilant. A lesson in watching. Because your adversary, the devil, is walking about seeking him may, may devour. Real quickly, a lesson in maturing. Verse 10. Peter says, after you've suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Notice that the sufferings, the trials right now, are going to sanctify you. Here's a lesson in maturing. After you've suffered a while. There's a case in Luke 22:32 again, back to that passage, where Jesus says, when thou art converted, strengthen the brother. Peter, you're going to go through a difficult trial, but when you come through on the other side, when thou art converted, then use what you've learned to teach others. You'll be strengthened, you'll be settled. And Peter says to the church here, God is able to use the sufferings of your life, even in the aftermath of personal failure. He's able to restore and to use the lessons you've learned to make you more useful in serving him. Finally, you'll notice I skipped right over verse 4. When the chief shepherd shall appear. Now, Peter, you're an under-shepherd, you're to feed the flock, but when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory, which fadeth not away. Peter learned at the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 1, a lesson in hoping, a lesson in anticipating. You remember the story? While the disciples were there, they were looking at Jesus as he ascended to heaven, and a cloud received him out of their sight, and suddenly two men in white raiment angels around them said ye men of galilee why stand ye gazing up into heaven 
For this same Jesus which is taken from you shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. Peter learned to keep his eyes on the skies for the second coming of Christ because the glory is going to be revealed. When the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory. And that means a crown which is glory. Doesn't mean that you'll get a crown for being such a good person. He means that God will crown you with his glory that fadeth not away when he comes again. My beloved, the best is yet to come. Glory follows the sufferings of this present moment. Peter learned a lesson in loving, serving, trusting, watching, hoping, and maturing. And he wants the people, through his own experience, he wants us to learn the same things he's learned. That's what growing in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ looks like in real life terms. If you feel like the Lord has made you a new creature in Christ and you're a newborn babe, don't you want to grow? The best way to do it is to assimilate the sincere milk of the word, take it in, and devote yourself to serving the Lord Jesus by serving as less than perfect people. We'll publish an open door to the church, 212, verses 1 and 2. Jesus Christ, the Lord,